standing at 73%. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Jenny Lam. On today's program, we're looking at the delayed start of the flu season in Hong Kong and how it affects the city. Health authorities say that's because we are now in the flu season, months later than usual, and that's because everyone had been masked up until the mandate was dropped last month. Some experts now say seasonal flu cases are surging so much that children's wards at hospitals are now under strain from all the patients admitted with respiratory symptoms. They also have been been concerns about the supply of influenza drugs. So how hard are we going to be hit by this unusual flu season? What should you do to minimise risks? After 9.45, we'll look at calls for better protection for victims of credit card fraud. Let us know what you think. You can leave us a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us on backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Now joining our discussion this morning, we have a Dr Mike Kwan, Honorary Clinical Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine. Dr. Vijay Danasekaran, a Associate Professor from the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health, and Dr. Aaron Lee, an Emergency Ward Doctor at the Caritas Medical Center. Good morning to you all, and thanks for joining us on the program. Um, let's start with you, Dr. Lee. Uh, what's been the recent situation at the Caritas Medical Center? I mean, have yes. there been more people coming in with flu symptoms? Yes, good morning. Uh, yes, we are seeing an uh, increase in number of patients attending our department in the past uh, few weeks. And then uh, there's also an increasing number of uh, people having fever coming to our department in the uh, just uh, around this one to two weeks time. So uh, the situation is that uh, some of the patients that I admit to the hospital uh, in the pediatric group uh, that means the children group, uh, they are, uh, after admission, they are tested, and then uh, many of them are having influenza A uh, virus infection. Some of them uh, have uh, respiratory situ virus infection, and also a uh, uh, lesser p- uh, portion of them have COVID-19 as well. But uh, the situation is not only in the children, but also in the adults, uh, especially those living in the elderly homes. Uh, I recall uh, yesterday when I was on duty, I saw uh, uh, we have uh, a patient uh, attending our department at 10 uh, in the morning, and then uh, he was awaiting, uh, uh, he was having a fever and pneumonia, and then he was waiting for admission to the medical ward. But uh, unluckily, after waiting for six hours, he cannot be uh, admitted to the ward and stay in our department and get uh, cardiac arrest. So uh, you can see the situation now, uh, the wards are uh, full of fever patients and then the patients are attending our department increasingly and also they are waiting and stuck in our department, cannot be admitted. Can you describe the kind of stress that this puts on the medical staff? Yeah. Uh, Especially because uh, some of our staff uh, are still not infected with the COVID-19, are almost all infected now. Uh, Very uh, little people are not infected, uh, as a matter of fact, but uh, some of them, 
uh, get sick and then they have to get the sick leave. Yeah. Right. They cannot go back to work. Yeah. Dr. Dennis Sakharan, I mean, what do you think of this situation described by uh, Dr. Lee? It's a little strange because uh, it's almost mid-April and uh, usually the flu season is over by now. But, but um, the hospital authority, it said uh, we just entered the flu season a few days ago. What's the re- reason behind this delay? Is it to do with uh, when the mask mandate was scrapped or are there other reasons for this? I mean, certainly. Um, I mean, I think uh, we cannot definitely say it's a flu season in Hong Kong. I think many have expressed this earlier as well. I mean, uh, influenza in Hong Kong is complex. It's not as simple as in the northern or southern hemispheres where you have one big peak during the winter months. In Hong Kong, you can have a major season any time during the year. And usually we see increase in number of cases between January till March or April. And it has certainly delayed because of various factors involved with COVID-19, changes in control measures, people having heightened awareness towards any respiratory symptoms and people wearing masks. And certainly there's been a certain delay in terms of rising cases. But having said that, there's no reason that the virus cannot have a surge even now, despite, you know, this is not the most ideal situation for influenza. I mean, as, as um, uh, Dr. Lee just explained, um, the health system is already under under high stress at the moment, and I don't think the virus has surged at very high intensity yet. So I think these are really good warnings that we need to take pay more attention towards not just COVID-19, but all sorts of uh, diseases, especially respiratory diseases. And uh, this is a concern which needs to be addressed, not just because of, you know, the control measures and things like that, but also uh, the general population has uh, more susceptible in the, in the population because many people have not been infected by influenza. And as we already know, Hong Kong does not have a very high vaccination rate in the elderly as well. So all these are mounting up towards stressing the public health system like we observed repeatedly every year. So you, you, you're saying that you don't think the virus is surging at a very high intensity yet. Are you saying the worst has yet to come? It may come. That's what I wanted to point out, right? I want to point out some huge influenza seasons we've had in the past. For example, in 2015 and 16, influenza was really high in Hong Kong. We had many, many influenza cases. Um, on average, if we have these big influenza cases, we have around 500 or 600 severe cases in the hospital, especially among the most elderly alone. And, and that, given that situation, what we've seen now, without any cases for the past three years, there's a big worry that, you know, the intensity of the situation could become worse. Okay. Uh, what is the mortality rate? Um, it differs at, at different age categories. And we know that the elderly and the frail are more susceptible. And I don't have an exact number in terms of the mortality rate because it varies widely depending on season season and, and vaccination rates and, and the proportion of elderly. And, and as well as the stress in the healthcare system as well. Suppose, like just Dr. Lee just explained, there's a patient who could have been treated quite early if, if the healthcare system was not under stress. And, and it's unfortunate that person got a cardiac arrest and, and the case moves to more severe cases. And, and such situations add up numbers, right? This is just one case you've heard about now, but this could happen repeatedly if there's intense circulation in the city. You pointed out that, that among the elderly, vaccination rate for flu um, if jabs is low. Are you saying then that if we step up the flu vaccination campaign, we might possibly put it under control or is it too late already? Um, I 
mean, I think it's never too late to really get vaccinated. Um, I'm really because I mean we don't know if this is the you know if this is going to end up as the big season that we've expecting for a while, and there could be a delay as well. But certainly, I mean, there's, there's absolutely lots of evidence. There's no doubt that if if you have adequate coverage of vaccination, especially in the most vulnerable population, you can actually uh, reduce the intensity of I mean, and, and protect the healthcare system as, as much as possible. Right. Now, now, Dr. Kwan, let's go to you. I mean, earlier, Dr. Lee, he said that he's been seeing more children going into uh, the Caritas Medical Center. And um, according to a statement from the hospital authority, the number of children hospitalized for influenza increased uh, 40 percent last week compared to the week before. Um, Dr. Kwan, do you think this uh, delayed flu season is, is having a bigger impact on children this time? Yes, it is true because uh, in this uh, time of the season, we are having the H1, the H1 uh, infection notorious that affects children more. And so this is why that in children population at this time uh, uh, infected more by the flu A H1 viruses. And also, uh, as, uh, told, as mentioned by the speaker before, that uh, in the previous three years that uh, because of the mask mandate and also all the social distancing measures, and all the children less than three years that they uh, didn't, didn't have a chance to contact with uh, the flu viruses and also other respiratory viruses. So they have a lower immunity against uh, the those pathogens. So this is why uh, after the removal of the mask mandate, uh, the early uh, last month, uh, then the, the in fact, uh, not only the flu A, the search of all viruses uh, we, we encounter uh, since March, uh, uh, the, the, the whole season, the whole the whole month, the the RSV and also other viruses like the enterovirus, the rhinovirus, and adenovirus. All the all the viruses that uh, become surge uh, among our children populations. Right. I have a comment here from our listener Henry, and uh, he says. Um we know that children during the COVID period in the last three years did little exercise compared to previous days. Um, I think as a result, not only have they gained weight, but their immunity has gone down as a result. They are more prone to flu infections. Um, Dr. Kwan, how big a role do you think a lack of exercise uh, plays uh, in lower immunity among kids? Yeah, in fact, exercise is one of the ways to strengthen our immunity and also uh, for uh, regular and uh, uh, eating habit, and also uh, regular and a, a healthy uh, eating uh, habit. So this is why we are now teaching our children population to have a to have a healthy lifestyle. Especially as Henry mentioned, exercise is really really important. And uh, but apart from that, I would like to echo. I wanted to echo the previous speaker that vaccination is extremely important. It is never too late to give the vaccination to our population. So I would like to take this chance to advocate the vaccination, especially the COVID and the flu vaccination among our populations. Um, but for very young children, I mean, you talk about exercise, uh, children under five, I mean, this is this is not really an option. Um, and, and sometimes um, even flu jabs, not even an option. So what advice do you have for parents to boost the immunity of very young children? It's an option uh, in all children uh, about six months, about six months of age, and to all to all uh, all, age, all population with all age about six months. So, and uh, uh, apart from this, and uh, at this at this moment of the full search, and we 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 need to teach our children to maintain a good personal hygiene, and also 
and uh, at the appropriate time to wear face mask to protect themselves. Those are the measures that can uh, help them to prevent the flu viruses. And also to advise parents that when they notice symptoms of the flu infection early and uh, to, uh, to uh, keep their child have very adequate rest at home and also if they detect any warning, warning sign or symptoms, Bring the, bring the children uh, to see a doctor early for early treatment. So this can avoid the situation as mentioned by, uh, by our doctor that the patient uh, deteriorate uh, uh, to, to, a, to, a, uh, to a worse situation. Right. And, and Dr. Kwan, I know you work at the Princess Margaret Hospital. Um, what is the situation there like? Is it uh, similar to what uh, Dr. Lee has been describing at, at uh, the Caritas Medical Centre? In, in actual fact, the uh, the burden uh, increased because of the uh, not not only the flu flu infection, but also other respiratory virus infection. But uh, I, I, I can tell the audience that uh, since uh, COVID, we all our medical staff are accustomed to this uh, increase in burden already, and because uh, also we have a flexible use of our uh, of our hospital beds. So we we also did what wrong very frequently. We we did what wrong. Uh, two times to three times per day to increase the turnover of our patients to vacant the hospital bed for our patients. So this is no worry that we can accommodate the increase in search of our patients. But most importantly is that uh, to perform a proper triage. If those uh, simple and also uh, mild cases, I advise the parents to take care of their children at home. They they no need to go to the A and D if uh, for simple cases, but. For, for severe cases or for those children with, for example, with chronic diseases, uh, lungs or heart uh, or other system problems, they need to consult the doctor early and they can go to the A&D if they have faced those uh, symptoms of the warning sign. So we, apart from chronically ill patients, what are, at which point should parents, parents bring the children to A&E? Is it fever over a, a certain point for a certain number of hours? And, uh, we, 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 we teach our parents to observe, uh, for example, uh, if those children, they have a particular fever lasting for, for more than, for, for example, two to three days, very high fever. If the child develops with breathing difficulty, in, if they have a uh, chest pain, if their heart beats uh, very fast, and, uh, for example, if they have a change in the sensorium or confusion, and uh, in unfortunate cases, if they have convulsions or a really poor oral intake, we advise them to go to the A&D uh, completely. Right. Uh, let's go back to uh, Dr. Lee for a moment. Dr. Lee? Yes. Um, um, you talked about uh, how there are more children being admitted to the Caritas Medical Centre. Um, what, what medication are, are they using? Yeah, uh, because uh, at our department, uh, we are at the front line, uh, we are not allowed to do uh, a lot of testing uh, for the time being for the viral infection to differentiate what type of virus infection. Uh, so we uh, have to admit the, this patient to the wards in order to uh, wait for the result of the testing. So this is uh, one of the reasons why uh, the, the, uh, not only the number of attendants in our department has increased from 200 something to 350 yesterday. Uh, because we are meeting those patients who need uh, some testing. And then uh, even the flu testing, we are not allowed to do so in our uh, department. So uh, we, 
uh, if uh, in, if the parents are concerned and then they want to know why their children have high fever, uh, and they know they want to know the uh, what type of pathogen their children have uh, contracted, and then they usually uh, allow the children to be admitted to the hospital for testing. So uh, this is uh, one of the reason why uh, uh, our wards are uh, stuck with patients. Uh, and full, uh, uh, especially the medical ward, uh, not only uh, the children, adults as well. Right. The, the reason why I'm asking is that there have been uh, some concerns about the lack of a flu-related medication, um, but that's not the case, is it? Uh, at the time, uh, for the time being, I think uh, hospital authority has uh, stocked up uh, enough uh, medication for the uh, patient uh, they, who need the uh, antiviral uh, treatment. But uh, for the private sector, uh, uh, because I'm working uh, in the Hong Kong Medical Association, uh, some of the colleagues in the private sector told me that they could not buy uh, any uh, antiviral medication for the flu. Uh, this is a very uh, alarming uh, situation uh, because uh, I was told that uh, during the COVID outbreak, many people are putting on their masks and then uh, there are a uh, few cases of uh, influenza outbreak. So uh, the drug company cut their imports of the antiviral uh, medication for flu to Hong Kong because uh, nobody is buying that. And then a lot of the medication is already expired uh, after the three years uh, pandemic. So uh, now we are uh, facing a upsurge of the flu and then some of the private sector doctors said, uh, oh, we cannot buy the antiviral medication from the drug company just because we, uh, our region is not allocated for the uh, medication. Uh, because the drug company usually calculate the import of these uh, drugs uh, from the past year. Uh, they put the budget and then uh, calculate the distribution. So uh, this is the, one of the reasons why uh, we... Uh, in the private sector, when patients go to uh, see their doctor for FIFA, they don't get the proper treatment as soon as possible. So which, which particular uh, medication are you talking about? Are you talking about Tamiflu or, or some other yeah, medication? Yeah. And, and yeah. so are you saying that Hong Kong needs to import more of this now? Yeah, uh, I think uh, it's uh, a bit late because, uh, you know, the drug company has to manufacture the drugs and then they have to calculate the stock uh, they are distributing. So uh, I think uh, after removal of the mask, it is a worldwide phenomenon that uh, there's an upsurge of flu and other viruses, as uh, Dr. Kwan has mentioned. And uh, so uh, in the U.S., uh, uh, they have uh, seen people removing masks. They have uh, increasing number of RSV, influenza, uh, all sorts of virus uh, infections. So they started to give... Uh, vaccination, uh, not only to one virus, but a combination of viruses. I was, heard, I was told that a uh, new vaccine uh, with a combination of COVID together with flu, together with RSV are administered to the uh, children or the adults to prevent uh, their serious infection after the removal of masks. But I don't think uh, this source of uh, contingency plan has been implemented from the uh, health authority locally. Dr. Kwan, what are your thoughts on that, that, that the contingency is just not there? 
And uh, regarding the Tenby flu, I would like to uh, advise uh, the uh, health professional that we should have a judicious use of this drug because uh, according to study, this drug only has a marginal benefit in the case of uh, flu treatment and we should reserve this drug uh, to those patients with a severe disease or we expect them uh, will progress to a severe disease or to use them in those high-risk for example, in those uh, uh, patients with chronic diseases or those immunocompromised individuals. So, in actual fact, that uh, not every uh, flu patient needs uh, flu. So, in in our practice, in my practice, in fact, uh, not many children prescribed with flu. And the second point I would like to stress is that flu got side effects. The side effects including uh, the nausea, vomiting, and also uh, those are the gastrointestinal side effects. And some, some side effects uh, reported uh, over the world, including what we call the neuropsychiatric uh, side effect, including uh, hallucination. And some adolescents, after taking Tamiflu, they have a uh, suicidal behavior. So this, uh, this, is, this is a concern. So uh, I advise the health professional to counsel the parents in detail. Uh, when, the, when the patients or the parents, they understand the side effect before they taking this uh, this drug so uh, my 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 comment is that not every patient uh, will be should be given tamiflu we, we we should give it uh, uh, in a in a in a, in a judicious uh, manner so so what kind of patient should be given tamiflu for example if uh, we encounter children with with uh, in severe illness or we expect them uh, will progress to severe illness and uh, in those children with with uh, chronic diseases uh, for example, those children with heart or lung or other organ problems, or those children with uh, immunocompromised condition, for example, those taking steroid for their own conditions, those children I would prescribe can be through. But for normal, healthy children, when when their condition is extremely good, extremely well, I won't I won't prescribe can be through. So the if the child is um, not severely ill. Um should not be taking Tamiflu. What is your advice to parents to the best course of management at home? On the yeah, my, my advice is that uh, to monitor the fever, as I mentioned, the, the to detect the warning sign uh, for them to bring to the doctor uh, early, to monitor the symptoms, the, for example, the body temperature, the oral intake, and also the aware of any new symptoms, for example, increase in the respiratory distress or any increase in heart rate, and at home to uh, maintain a good uh, home ventilation and home hygiene, and also uh, give adequate hydration uh, to the child, and also monitor the, uh, the the urine output. For example, if the urine output is not good, that means the patient is not well hydrated. So these, these are the important uh, signs for the parents to observe at home. If they de- detect the, 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 if they find that the child is uh, perfectly, perfectly well at home, the, the child is in fact no need for chemical treatment. Right. And just so finally, uh, before we take a break for the news, uh, Dr. Lee, um, earlier you mentioned how they, uh, an elderly uh, patient had to wait for six hours. Do you, do you expect uh, the waiting time at public hospitals to, uh, to uh, continue uh, for some yeah. time? Yeah, uh, this is a bit worrying because uh, after the Easter holiday, many people have uh, traveled to mainland China to uh, overseas countries. They are coming back, and then uh, I found that uh, many of them have uh, bring the bring in 
uh, viral infection as well after traveling because nobody wear mask uh, anywhere now. So uh, I see a patient uh, coming back from China with COVID-19 positive tested adults. Uh, and then also uh, I saw uh, many cases of flu uh, after traveling. So uh, the main concern is that after the public holiday, we are seeing increasing number of fever patients uh, coming back uh, from all sorts of places. All right, then, uh, all right, Dr. Yeah, Kwan, I'm afraid we're out of time. We have to take a quick break for the news. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's, uh, Dr., uh, that's Dr. Aaron Lee, an emergency ward doctor at the Caritas Medical Center. Many thanks also to uh, Dr. Mike Kwan, an honorary clinical associate professor at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine. And uh, Dr. Dana Sakharan, we can continue our discussion after the news when we will be joined by Iris Chang, the president of the Practicing Pharmacists Association of Hong Kong. Uh, now, if you have any questions for our guests or just want to share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And uh, here's a quick look at the weather. Sunny intervals with a top temperature of around 28 degrees. Right now it's 25 degrees. Relative humidity, 71%. <music> It's now 9.30. With a news summary, here's Todd Harding. An educator has called for interim measures to prevent schools being closed due to a declining number of students. The drop in students is attributed to migration and falling birth rates in the city. Mervyn Jung, head of the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Organization, says the ratio of students per teacher could be reduced. He also called for a halving of the quota for discretionary places, where parents directly approach schools of their choice if they're not happy with the central allocation. A global study says climate warming emissions linked to electricity production are expected to fall this year due to a boom in renewables. It says 2023 is likely to mark the first fall in the use of coal, oil and gas for energy, apart from during the pandemic. And the International Monetary Fund says most economies will avoid going into recession this year, but global growth will be slightly lower than last year. The IMF said the situation should change in 2024. Its chief economist said global inflation would ease, although more slowly. We'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. The Education Bureau provides a non-means-tested annual subsidy for eligible students to pursue full-time locally accredited self-financing undergraduate programs in Hong Kong offered by eligible institutions. In the 2023-24 academic year, the subsidy amount will be up to 33,740 Hong Kong dollars, and the eligibility criteria will be rationalized to benefit students from diverse qualification backgrounds. For details, please search online for NMTSS and visit the designated website. Why have so many online accounts and passwords when you need only one with I Am Smart? You can access different online services using the I Am Smart platform, fill in forms automatically, and receive personalized notifications. Access the online services of public and private organizations with I Am Smart. For more details, visit IamSmart.gov.hk. I Am Smart, the safe and swift gateway to online services.
Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Jenny Lam and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is Dr. Vijay Danasekaran, an associate professor from the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health. And joining us now is Iris Chang, the president of the Practicing Pharmacists Association of Hong Kong. Good morning, Ms. Chang. Hello. Ms. Chang, thanks for joining us on the program. Um, there have been some concerns over the shortage of flu-related medication, and although the hospital authority has told us in a statement that the supply and stock of flu medication at public hospital is normal at the moment, we heard earlier from our other guest um, that uh, there have been some shortages uh, in the private sector. So, um, Ms. Chang, what is the overall supply situation like in Hong Kong? Well, the overall supply situation is a little bit tense now because there's more of the flu patients needing the medications, especially in the community sector. Uh, we've heard about the government being able to support more of the community uh, healthcare professionals in supplying the medicines to uh, their patients. But however, it is still a very uh, tense situation right now. And that's for um, all flu-related uh, medication or, or just uh, are we just talking about uh, Tamiflu for children? Well, I think the Tamiflu is more in higher demand because uh, it's more convenient to use for especially the the uh, elderly population and also the, uh, the younger population because it's an oral formulation. So in Hong Kong, we have the Tamiflu and we have the Relenza. The Relenza is actually an inhaled product. So uh, some patients may not be uh, using that uh, most of the time. So the Tamiflu is more popular in Hong Kong. So uh, we remember, you know, a month or so ago when the border with mainland China reopened, there was a, a high demand for um, medications such as Panadol uh, in Hong Kong. Is that, is that still, is there still a shortage on basic medication like that? Well, at this moment in time, we're seeing that uh, in OK supply, uh, we don't see any shortage in that area at this moment. Okay, uh, Donna, uh, Dr. Dennis Akaran, um, from some of the reports from overseas, the United States, for example, we they, they saw children not just with uh, influenza A, but two or three viruses at the same time, adenovirus, rhinovirus. What, what are, are we going to expect the same kind of trends in Hong Kong? I mean, I think that's, uh, that's exactly what is going on in Hong Kong at the moment, where we usually have a collection of respiratory pathogens which circulate and cause infections. And uh, apart from rhinoviruses, which is the common cold viruses, we have the RSV, which you just mentioned. Uh, influenza is probably one of the most dominant ones, which causes you know the big outbreaks and infects a lot a bigger age population as well. But certainly, we have multiple viruses circulating, many of which we don't have any vaccines for as well. And how does that complicate treatment then? Exactly. I mean, I was quite surprised when I think one of the doctors earlier was mentioning that they don't have uh, rapid tests for non-COVID infections, because if you don't know what infection it is, how are you going to treat that particular patient, whether you're going to write a Tamiflu uh, prescription or not? It completely depends on whether that patient has influenza in the first case, because Tamiflu is not going to work against any of the other pathogens. All right, and uh, so, so, but then when you look at uh, other places, I mean, what is their the flu situation like? I mean, do you think many places are are actually fighting over Tamiflu? Um, I I don't think uh, there's been such a urgent need for Tamiflu um, anywhere globally, or I mean, I've, I've never heard of you know running out of systems. I mean, I really think that globally, many places have actually ramped up their healthcare system since COVID-19. They have been prepared for what's going to come up because we've not been warning about influenza just in the last few weeks, right? Because we've known this for a while now. 
that we need to pay attention for other, to other viruses, especially since the last big wave of Omicron that we had in Hong Kong. We have been telling the government authorities that we need to build up a ramp up towards because there is a gap in the population, especially the immunity gap that's been caused by the COVID-19. And this is mainly in the younger population who, who supposedly who's supposed to get infected regularly in the community have not been gotten infected. So we have sort of, you know, uh, slightly elderly children who've never experienced as much as flu, like what, you know, what we would have experienced but when we're much younger, have not seen these viruses. So we do have um, uh, an excess population, let's say some schools, who can readily get infected. And at this point of time, and I'm really surprised again that we don't have tools such as we, we could have had, you know, the rapid antigen tests for, for multiple pathogens. I've seen um, other countries have started and preparing and ordering and, and applying these things so that we can deduce what sort of pathogen the, the patient is getting infected. And if it's RSV, we don't have a vaccine for children yet. And, 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 the, and the ones for the elderly and pregnant women is just under being tested and, and it's just being tested in the population and not um, uh, approved by many health authorities globally yet. So we have a, a complex situation at this moment. And I certainly, I mean, there's problems with, you know, just prescribing Tamiflu as well as one of the doctors explained with some of the side effects potentially. And and there's, there's, I mean, really, I think we, we've left this too late. Can you explain a little bit when you say rapid tests for these other viruses, um, how rapid are they? Do these have to be done in hospitals? Which viruses are we thinking about? I mean, I've seen, uh, you know, this is literally like the COVID-19 rapid uh, uh, antigen test, which you can literally find results in seconds. Um, it, it is. It looks exactly the same, except that it has uh, multiple panels going forward. So you're going to put a few more drops and a few more slots in that machine, and and it'll you know uh, light up as soon as it finds um, antibodies towards um, towards particular virus. So we have COVID-19 row, and then we have RSV row, and then we have a flu A and a flu B row. Um, and this is a very simple practice that we've been all using, and we all can use. Uh, and the government made us use it repeatedly over the last year. Ms. Chang, have you have you heard much about uh, the supply of uh, these tests in Hong Kong? No, I don't have um, the experience of using those rapid tests in the community. So it would be good to have some of these uh, new inventions uh, to help us differentiate the different types of uh, viruses that we have uh, active in the community. We do have these tests. Right. Uh, and they're not always just treatable with, with medication, are they, uh, Dr. Dennis Akaran? I mean, certainly not all, um, I mean, we don't have antivirals or vaccines for many of these pathogens, but we know sort of, you know, what's the most troubling viruses which when it comes to the community. And we know clearly that the top three respiratory diseases at the moment is COVID-19, influenza viruses, and the respiratory syncytial virus, which is also called RSV. And, and so clearly, I mean, all these three, um, at least two of them, which we can, you know, uh, use a rapid antigen test to deduce what these uh, viruses are because we also have a huge list of antivirals that we can apply and pick from um, um, and, and for treatment, especially for the most severe cases. And, and certainly, right, I mean, if we, if we can at least, you know, protect uh, against two and pay good attention towards what's really uh, going on, uh, instead of, you know, what's, what would be the worst is if a child has got RSV and, and, and the, past, the parents or, you know, somebody decides to treat the patient with Tamiflu with, with absolutely no effect towards, you know, uh, making the patient feel better. And these are the concerns, I think, which, 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 which the health authority needs to think through a bit more. So, so with these uh, tests you're talking about, uh, Dr. Dana Sakharin, um, it, it could um, help uh, relieve the pressure at uh, public hospitals, right? 
Certainly. I mean, I, I, I absolutely think that would actually relieve, and, and uh, especially the numbers which Dr. I'm, I'm not sure Dr. Kwan or Dr. Lee was saying earlier that they have to keep the patient in the hospital until the test comes out, right? Which means that you have another 300 or 400 children waiting in the line and an elderly population not getting enough access to the healthcare system, which is, which is the, the real concern in Hong Kong all the time. And these tests, I mean, earlier, uh, Ms. Chang was saying that uh, it's uh, sort of new to Hong Kong. I mean, according to your understanding, is it, uh, is it that new? Um, I mean, it's, it's all being just developed. I don't think uh, all the countries are using it as well uh, yet. But that's something that which has been developed already, which exists in the market. Um, and I think if, if we had, you know, governments who want to, you know, face a challenge, face the challenge and take it on, then I think they would have known about this already. And, and instead of just talking about Tamiflu, and the government would be talking about things that work really well, like vaccines. Um, I've not seen, you know, so much of discussions in terms of why, what is the need for people to take vaccines and what people could do. And and then because it's, this, I mean, Hong Kong is not a, you know, an underprivileged country. We have access um, that we could get ready for all these things. So, I mean, there's absolutely no reason that we should wait till, you know, uh, everybody approves it because Hong Kong has the ability to get these things if needed. Right. And speaking about vaccines, uh, um, Ms. Chang, what is the supply of vaccines like right now in Hong Kong? I mean, flu vaccines. Well, currently, to my understanding, we have a steady supply. So, of course, we're seeing a little bit more uptake now, but then uh, we're getting more supply uh, from the manufacturers. But definitely, uh, we have to be uh, better prepared to protect ourselves and our families from the flu. So, in addition to, let's say, the flu shot, uh, we have to also ask our elderly members of the family to get the pneumonia pneumonia shot so that they get protected from pneumococcal diseases. Because a lot of times when they have a serious flu uh, disease and have to go into the hospital, then usually uh, the death does not come from the flu, but actually from pneumonia. So uh, they need to get the shots together so then they can get better prepared. So and definitely, and the things that we have learned from the COVID pandemic during these three years, I think we can uh, use that into practice to prevent the flu. Let's say if uh, we have uh, elderly members of the family and younger children at our home, if we catch the flu, uh, we need to go seek medical attention. Uh, a lot of the antiviral medications, if necessary, need to be initiated and taken within 48 hours. And to stay away from the healthy members of our family, so let's say putting ourselves in a little room, uh, not going to work. So a lot of these things can help stop the spread of the flu to the more, more vulnerable members of our family. So, uh, Dr. Dennis Akaran, I, I'm interested to know um, that you said earlier, Hong Kong, unlike a lot of other places, does not seem to have a specific flu season. Why is that? Um, I mean, it, this is uh, this is a pattern of influenza, and it's not just Hong Kong. It's usually the tropical nations and subtropical nations. Um, there's, there's there's lots of complex, and this has been studied really well, and this is due to um, lots of factors. Uh, one is humidity, temperature, and things like that, which doesn't really permit influenza viruses to just kick off um, in in the tropics and subtropics. And then there's another reason as well. We have year-round circulation. Um, we we are a population where there's you know the greater density um, um, among in, a, in Southeast Asia and Asia, and we have lots of you know big cities connected with each other. So we sort of have you know year-round circulation. Uh, some seasons it's very low, um, and as Ben Cowling recently pointed out, that by analysing years of data in Hong Kong, showing that you know September to December is usually the lowest period, but still you 
can find fluidity even during that season. But then the bigger seasons, I think really, you know, the, the January till April peak really coincides with all these festivals in the region. Uh, there's lots of, you know, mixing in the population and travel. And uh, we've shown recently that even during COVID in the mainland, there was a big uh, epidemic immediately connected with the, the spring festival. Um, and so those are the reasons. And again, the second peak in summer is usually uh, connected with epidemics going on in the southern hemisphere. We're relatively close to Australia, for example, where they have big uh, summer uh, peaks. And then there's lots of people traveling at the same time. So there's lots of virus getting seeded into the communities repeatedly, uh, causing outbreaks. So these are some of the factors which drive it, really. Right. And Dr. Dennis Akron, like I mentioned earlier, the hospital authority said we entered the flu season a few days ago. Um, is there any way of telling when this uh, current flu season will peak? Um, that's, the, that's a very difficult decision, really. I mean, um, I mean, people's in a normal scenario, I would say that it could, you know, uh, the whole season could get over in like uh, nine to ten weeks or roughly around that time where you have lots of cases and then it goes down. But however, people's behavior has changed since COVID-19. So it's really hard uh, at this moment to really predict if you're going to have a peak now. But just to keep in mind that there's not just one, there's about three influenza strains which cause epidemic, right? There's two influenza A viruses and there's the influenza B virus as well. And these could take turns causing epidemics in, in Hong Kong as well. So you, even if this doesn't go on to peak, um, there's, there's no reason to not expect the, the other viruses to come and take over and then cause a bigger peak down the line, uh, especially because we've had this, you know, the huge accumulation of the, of the population, the community over time. So really, I mean, we are in uncharted territory at the moment, it's highly unpredictable, and this is even more reason why we should be even better prepared for all these uh, uncertainty that we are actually experiencing at this moment. Well, can you elaborate when you say peak? Are you talking about a, a rate of transmission at a certain point? Um, that's right, actually. I mean, usually um, um, in Hong Kong, especially with influenza, the peak is usually just measured with hospital admissions. Um, and the virus is obviously the peak of the virus is a bit earlier, uh, a week or a couple of weeks earlier. And um, the peak could, you know, uh, we could have a huge peak like in 2015, six, uh, 2015 and 16, where we've had 500, 600 cases roughly around the same time in five or six weeks in the hospital. Or it could, you know, spread out and we may not have a big peak like in 2015-16, but it could actually be a, a long season in many, many weeks because we are suppressing the virus, uh, viruses to a limit because of uh, a limited uh, numbers of mask wearing and people, you know, changing their behaviors and not, not meeting people. So both the scenarios can be expected, I think, at this moment. All right, uh, Dr. Dennis Sakharan, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Dr. Vijay Dennis Sakharan, an associate professor from the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health. Many thanks also to uh, Iris Cheng, the chairperson of the Practicing Pharmacists Association of Hong Kong. It's now 9.47 and in a moment we'll look at calls for better protection for victims of credit card fraud. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hello, I'm Michael Wong, the Deputy Financial Secretary. For the past 95 years, our THK has shared a common journey with Hong Kong people. Going forward, I trust that our THK will continue to provide Hong Kong with more programs that are rich in content and that can move our hearts. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned, Stay tuned. with Hong Kong. 
You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. The DAB party has called on the authorities to clearly define what constitutes gross negligence to better protect credit card holders who have fallen victim to fraud. This comes after the party said it has received dozens of complaints from people who had been ordered to pay for the fraudulent charges after their card issuers concluded that they had been grossly negligent. Under the Monetary Authority's Code of Banking Practice, a cardholder's liability for card loss cannot exceed $500 unless the individual is found to have acted fraudulently or with gross negligence. To comment on this, we are now joined on the line by Gilly Wong, the Chief Executive of the Consumer Council. Good morning, Ms Wong. Good morning, Janice and Jenny. Morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. So, so first of all, has the Consumer Council received uh, similar complaints from victims of uh, credit card fraud? Uh, yes, we, we, we do. Uh, um, from 2020 um, uh, onwards, uh, until now, we received 100, around 100 cases about uh, um, that kind of complaints. And um, a lot of them is related to um, uh, complaints on uh, credit card scam uh, that involve the amount is uh, really up to 3.9 million, so it's about 4 million. And the average amount per case is about $38,000. Uh, this is one thing uh, very interesting to see when we read through all the complaint cases. Um, the transaction is not a very big transaction. It is um, something, you know, in a small amount, but uh, that happened in a very short period of time. It is harder for the bank to detect, but on the other hand, when it aggregate, you know, the sum is quite substantial for the consumers to bear with. Um, so um, this is, you know, the patterns that uh, we receive, uh, that we observe. And also, um, of course, you know, for the complainant, when they want you know, spot it, um, while they work, you know, um, they, they spot there's a very unusual transaction. They report it to the credit card company very promptly, but uh, still, you know, they are asked, you know, to uh, pay for uh, the sum uh, that's um, uh, alleged, you know, to be uh, a scam. So uh, this is quite unfair to consumer, and that's why, you know, they file a complaint um, to the council and seek our help, you know, as a result. And even some of them, you know, has reported to the police immediately, but still, you know, the bank requests them, you know, to pay for the amount as well. Do you find that different banks handle these um, complaints differently? We haven't um, done a very comprehensive survey about it, uh, so it's very hard to comment, but you know, by far, you know, what we observe, um, for all the credit cards, you know, that is more commonly used, you know, by Hong Kong people, we observe, <coughs> we observe that, you know, they, they, uh, they, they um, record, you know, more uh, complaints, you know, for, for that particular bank. Uh, so um, probably, you know, uh, we, on an ongoing basis, the council is liaising with them, and we hope, you know, those banks, you know, can really look into the system and uh, identify areas, you know, that can improve uh, so that, you know, the consumers could be better protected. I'm reading this article that's um, filed by the Standard of a woman who, who who lost her wallet, and so she lost uh, different types of credit cards. When so one bank um, agreed that um, she did not have to pay those fees, uh, but another bank said she does. So is that something that you have come across? Um, we haven't come across cases that. Um, um have lost several cards and then, you know, they encounter different treatments from different banks. But no matter what, uh, we have to, no, no matter what circumstances, under 
Under um, the current uh, COVID funding practice, as you just mentioned at the opening of this interview, banks should not hold victims responsible for cut losses or at most up to $500 unless the victim has acted fraudulently with gross negligence or failed to inform the bank as soon as reasonably practicable after having discovered that his or her card was lost stolen. And um, also, uh, the court also mentioned that the cardholder should be warned by banks that they may be held liable for all losses if they fail to follow certain safeguards or fail to meet certain obligations. Uh, but no matter what, you know, in any event, while the cardholders, uh, they are exercising due diligence to safeguards, uh, to keep custody about their credit card and uh, also the card information, but the banks still owe a duty to take reasonable skill and care in and about executing the customer's order. So if they fail to do so and ask the consumer to pay for it, um, uh, as a victim, this is very unfair to consumer. So uh, I think, you know, there's a huge area, you know, that the banking improve and look into their guidelines themselves. On top of it, I think, you know, the uh, responsible authority uh, should also put forward more clearer uh, guidelines about, you know, this kind of circumstances, how the bank, you know, should handle and also treat the consumers. All right, so, so you also agree that uh, the definition of uh, what constitutes uh, gross negligence uh, should be clarified? Um, actually, under the common law, gross negligence has been described as not simply an omission to take all reasonable care, but much more than that. It must be culpable and also um, and gross or immoral conduct with reckless or serious disregard of an obvious risk. Um, so this is a much stronger definition under the law. And I think, you know, the, uh, the public has to be educated about it and also the bank, the authority also have to look into it. Uh, making sure that, you know, when you talk about um, uh, gross uh, negligence, what you're talking about. And in actual fact, the court of banking practice has put forward an example on what constitutes gross negligence. Um, this is a case where uh, customers know, allow, unknowingly allow the use by others or, or, or of the device or secret goal. So there, there are examples, there, there's a one example, you know, quoted, and we believe, you know, if there are more examples and also with a much clearer guideline for the bank, um, the inconsistency and also uh, the pressure and also um, uh, the unfair treatment to consumers, you know, could be much better mitigated. So, so uh, as far as the consumer council is concerned, on the on these loopholes, um, well, not exactly loopholes. Do you feel they're loopholes in in the way uh, banks are, are sort of demanding customers to settle the bill first? And and if, if there are loopholes, what are those? What do you think should be done? You know, the, the compliance with the code um, is a question. And also um, the understanding about the gross negligence and also how the bank behaves uh, differently among each other. Uh, these are the areas, you know, that can be improved. And also uh, the public education by itself. Uh, you know, when consumers encounter this kind of circumstances, when they know what they right, they know what is specified in the code. Uh, when they liaise with bank, you know, they, they know, you know, what they could stand up for. Right. I, I read an, an example in uh, one of the articles on this uh uh, this topic, and uh, it's, it gave an example about uh, someone who uh, left uh, her wallet in her drawer at, in the office, and then she went to the bathroom, and, uh, and then that that can be a uh, gross negligence. I mean, if, if her credit card was taken, is that uh, your understanding? Well, I think in every case is uh, circumstantial, but um, uh, 
I still have to go back, you know, to the definition under the law because uh, it must be provable and gross or immoral conduct of regard of an obvious risk. So um, if it is just by mistake, you know, it was lost and then, you know, she reported to the, to the police, you know, very promptly and then, you know, the use or, or, or maybe um, uh, uh, stamps, you know, for it, um, the consumer, you know, under that circumstances, should it be liable? Uh, I think, you know, that poses questions. But of course, you know, we are not um, in, front, uh, uh, in front of the court. But if the judge, you know, to judge about it, um, they may have uh, the, the most, you know, correct judgment. How do you think e-commerce... But no matter what you yeah. the customer service can be far better because according to the complaint cases that we received, um, the attitude, the speed of response, and also the follow-up, in actual fact, you know, boom! Um, it's uh, very um, discouraging and also uh, not up to the standards uh, expected you know, by your average consumer because uh, we saw cases that um, the consumer, con- the victim actually, you know, continue to follow up, to make calls and talk to different people about the incident. Uh, he reported to the police already, but still, you know, the follow up is very slow and that passed around, you know, to different people and said, you know, when they escalated to um, the more senior level to... Um, to follow up, but um, that took um, that took a very long time. Uh, that is very stressful, you know, to the victim. And uh, we believe, you know, this kind of circumstances should be much properly handled, um, so that you know the consumer could be fairly treated. Do you feel that e-commerce has complicated all of this? I mean, when you say, you know, the 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 consumer should call the company, you know, that you're buying from. When this is an e-commerce company, that can be very complicated. Um, I don't think, you know, e-commerce company uh, would be very different, you know, from <clears throat> any other transaction. Um, recent thing is when we saw all these kind of uh, complaint cases, the details is not only purchased from e-commerce. Uh, it could be from physical shops as well. Um, in actual fact, you know, we have to question about um, the technology because technology can bring a lot of benefits you know, to consumers. Uh, it brings a lot of convenience. Uh, but... It seems like, you know, um, when the banks, you know, deploy technology to safeguard the consumer interest to ensure that um, abnormal spending can be more detectable uh, and also to ensure the security system uh, is, uh, um, uh, can be very strong, you know, to guide against, you know, the consumers. Uh, it seems like, you know, there are uh, quite improvement areas, you know, under, under scam circumstances for a credit card. Right. And just finally, Ms. Wong, uh, what advice do you have for, for consumers? Um, there are several advice, you know, frankly, you know, from, uh, fundamentally, a consumer has to think twice and also be really uh, uh, conscious about, you know, how many credit cards you have and also the spending limit, you know, that you want to have. Because many banks, you know, want you to spend more and then they gave you a very, very high spending amount, uh, spending limit for it. But when uh, scams, you know, like this uh, kind of thing that happened, uh, it could uh, incur more risk, you know, for you. So the this the determination on the amount and not right. how many cards you have. Is All right, Ms. Wong, I'm afraid, I'm afraid we're out of time. We'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Gilly Wong, the Chief Executive of the Consumer Council. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today and, of course, to our guest presenter, Jenny Lam, and producers, Carolyn and Angie. I'll be back with another edition of Back Chat tomorrow with Danny Gittings.